Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Through Their Eyes, our special series featuring Utah teenagers discussing current events on Utah's Morning News with Tim and Amanda. Such a pleasure this week to have three wonderful young people in studio with me. Micaiah, Dallin, and John are here. Welcome, welcome to the three of you. We have a lot to talk about this week, and I want to start with an interesting bit of research that came, I think, out of BYU this week. Um, And the headline said... New research says screen time matters less than we think in teen depression. Now, when I saw that, my initial response was, really? Because so much research before that had said something almost exactly the opposite. Um, And when we talked about this story on the air, we got so many texts from parents saying, don't say that. Screen time is important. We need to make sure kids aren't uh, abusing the screen time, even if it isn't the the sole uh, contributor to teen depression. There's a link there of some kind. Um, When you read about this, Micaiah, I'll start with you. What's your initial response? When I read about the research that was done by BYU, the point that they made was not that the screen time was the culprit, but that social media was the culprit for depression. And as a teenager with social media, even posts that are seemingly positive can be negative and have negative impacts. And so for me, it's obvious that the real culprit when it comes to teen depression and screen time isn't the screen time itself, but the social media that's involved. So I think it's important that we have the conversation with parents and children and kids that social media can be a healthy outlet but also it needs to be countered with positive effects as well as the negative effects. Mm. What about for you, Dallin? What did you see? Yeah, so where there's two, where there's different conflicting conclusions from different studies, I think it comes down to methodology. And I tend to agree more with the BYU, the BYU study's conclusion because of two things. First off, I think that the reason people are, are like, the, the reason screen time matters isn't so much like actually how long they're on the screen, but at what cost. What is it that they would be doing instead of screen time that they're not getting because they're on a screen? And second, again, like I I spend a lot of time on the screen. I do school online with the computer, and that to me is not impacting me because I'm using the screen to do something useful. You know, my experience is where where the screen has started to be detrimental to me. Like, you know, if I've ever spent a day like blowing time on YouTube, right? I feel dissatisfied with myself because I'm not meeting my own expectations, and I think that's more contributing to it than the fact that I'm looking at a screen. So it depends on what you're doing online. Okay, speak to me, John. Yeah, so my opinion is kind of right along with Dallin's is that it's not so much that you're spending time on your screen, it's what you're doing with your screen time. Um, and, and based on what I saw when I was reading over the study, it looked like even social media could be a positive impactor on people's health so long as they were using it correctly. And I think that's the biggest um, issue in today's society is that we're not using screen time correctly. Like Dallin was saying, screens can be incredibly helpful for like for school and for stuff like that. Um, but it really just depends on whether or not we're using our screens correctly. How do we use – did you ascertain from that how we use social media correctly? 
you know that's a great question um i this has always been like a hard a hard question for me i don't i don't personally have social media just because i find i i get distracted easier really um, yeah. you don't have facebook you don't have instagram you don't have any of it nope an email and a flip phone's the best i got um, yeah, so I find that I get distracted and I can't focus and I can't work as hard as I as I normally would if I had social media. So I found that for me, it's just eliminating is the best is the best solution to that problem. That's interesting. Um, I remember one of the things that that they said in the article was unfollowing is your friend. And this is something that I have said to not just young people, but to people of all ages. If someone is um, reaching out to you or commenting in any kind of a negative way that feels attacking, there is no obligation on your part to engage with this person. Uh, unfollowing is your friend. Unfollow. And if that person ever wants to engage with you in a more respectful way, you know, we can look at that down the road. But yeah, I, I, I do not, I am not reluctant to l- cancel that bad energy from my life. Does that speak to you, Makaya? Yeah, definitely. And I think even extending that unfollowing idea to any profile that is not uplifting. So even if it's not directed towards you, any profile or posts that you see that don't uplift you when you're looking on social media, unfollow them. There's no reason for you to be following them and seeing those things. And I think that's important for us to understand when we're looking at social media. Because that's taking time out of your life. And I do remember one other thing that I'd like you to comment on. It talked about the rule of one hour before bedtime. And what you do with that one hour before bedtime. Are you on your screens for whatever purpose, an hour before bedtime. I'll start with you, Dylan. Well, it depends on how much homework I had to do and how well I budgeted my time, right? Because, you know, oftentimes it does end up being I end up working late, crawling into bed and going right to sleep. And, and you know, I, a lot of I, I've heard these things where it's like, you know, think five happy things before you go to bed because that's going to set the tone for what you're going to think about through the night. And, you know, I, I, I have tried that. I, I should definitely experiment with it more because I haven't, you know, tried it enough to to start figuring out what impact it is and stuff. You know, I, I do think that, you know, social media an hour before bedtime, there's a lot of problems with that. Do you have, this is a terribly personal question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Yeah. But do you think that your screen time has a negative effect on your sleep? You don't have to answer that if you don't want I, to. I, I think it definitely does. Um, part of that is kind of the idea of like blue light. The, the light color that is emitted by screens is similar to that of the sun at noonday. So it tricks your eye, like through your eyes and into your brain, thinking like your brain starts thinking it's the middle of the day. Um, and I actually like a couple weeks back, my eyes started getting all red because it, like, it, it was just like, you know, I was using the screen late at night. Right. I was I had a whole a whole lot going on. And so I just ended up having to work late a lot. And it, it was it's my eyes were hurting and it was not good. Right. And I think, you know, there's that problem. I also think you could talk about, you know, what um, what sort of mood it puts you in right before you go to bed, because you, like you you have a lot going on and to simply just like shut off from like a million miles an hour to zero is going to be really, really hard. <sighs> OK, so, John, you don't do social media. But do you are you on any screen right before bed? That's a terribly personal oh, question. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Um, kind of like along with what Dallin was saying, I I have homework and I have school that I'm trying to do, um, trying to catch up on that stuff. Um, but but honestly, I find that when I like sit down and read a book for like ten or fifteen minutes before I go to bed, instead of staring at a screen and typing up papers and stuff, um, then I honestly can have a way better sleep. Um, and yeah, I've, I've definitely noticed that effect of being on a screen right before I go to bed definitely affects my sleep. Mm. Is it the same for you, Makaya? 
Yeah, in in my house, we don't have our our cell phones or our electronics in our bedrooms at night. We leave them downstairs, and I think that's I've seen a difference in my life ever since we've done that. Really, in that I'm an emotionally happier person when I go to sleep and when I get up in the morning because I haven't been on the screen or looking at social media or even doing homework. I take an hour before bed by myself doing whatever I love, and I can see. The impacts of that resulting in me having better sleep, but also having better emotional health overall. What did this is terribly personal? You don't have to answer if you don't want to. Okay. What do you do in that hour? Do you read? I yeah, read, write in my journal, just something that I like to do, hmm. or just lay in bed and think. You know, anything before bed. That's beautiful. Um, I want to go from that uh, comment to another sleep-related comment. Are you a pro, a pro daylight savings person or a, a con daylight saving person? I you, now I don't know whether you're old enough to have real strong opinions about this, but people my age, we could talk for the rest of the day about this topic. <laughs> so I'm going to start with you, Dallin. Uh, do you have a strong opinion about this? Number one. Um, yeah, I, I do actually. I think daylight savings is it's. I, I used to absolutely hate it because you know come. Come spring, it's going to be tough when the hour falls back and I don't I have less sleep, and it's hard. Uh, I'm actually in favor of daylight savings, though, and that's not just because it's fall right now. The reason I'm in favor of daylight savings is because I think, you know, kind of like we were talking about with sleep, we want to line up our sleeping with the sunlight so that we actually have light when we're going. Like, even just today, I woke up, I went out to my first class, and it was bright outside, and oh my gosh, that's so much better than it being still dark outside. And while, you know, there's... You know, they have all the statistics about, you know, crash rates increasing. My thought is, well, if we were messing up everyone's sleep cycles for the rest of the year, we would see that. It wouldn't be all conglomerated on one day. It would probably be more throughout the rest of the year. So the light feeds you when we get that light, when we fall back in the morning, the light feeds you in that way. Like, you know, the, the sun wakes up and the rest of us should too. And you don't mind the change in the year. I'm, you know, it, it can be kind of frustrating. Like I get that it's like difficult, but I think the... The pros far outweigh the cons when we think about throughout the entire year. Would you stay in this time cycle if you could, in this uh, sunlight in the morning time cycle? Yeah, I like sunlight in the morning for sure. Instead of going into the to the time cycle where you have more light in the evening? Um, you know, I, I do think it's preferable to have sunlight in the morning when possible, mm. yeah. What about for you, John? I, yeah, I'm actually going to have to agree with Dallin again. Um, I really hate switching back and forth. I'll be totally honest. I hate losing an hour, but I love getting an hour back, so that's pretty nice. Yeah. Um, but I think um, one, of, one of the biggest reasons um, from, what I've, from what I've researched, one of the biggest reasons that we haven't switched to staying off daylight savings time entirely is simply because different industries aren't willing to do that because they get more, more customers, more business. Um, but I also think... Um, I've, I've seen evidence that shows that the people want to stay off of daylight savings. Um, and I think that at some point, businesses need to respond to that feedback and we need to, um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty biased on this point, but I, I really love um, the, the morning the morning light versus the evening light. I'm a bigger fan of the morning light. So, so you, I think you'd stay on morning light. I think that the, the, the time we're in now is called standard time. Mm-hmm. When we have the more morning light, that is standard time. So you'd stay in standard time. Yes, had, 100%. What about for you, Makai? So I disagree with John and Dallin. I think that losing an hour in the spring and gaining it in the fall is just a big hassle, and I would rather not have to deal with it. I think that statistics show that, sure, it might help, but statistics also show that it has some cons as well. 
So I would support us doing something similar to Arizona and completely stepping away from daylight savings and just keeping our clocks the same and not having to go through that hassle of losing and gaining an hour. If you had to choose, would you stay with more light in the morning where we are now in standard time or would you keep more light in the evening which I think is called daylight saving time in the summer, like it is in the summer. Yeah, I would keep the standard time. In the standard time. Yeah. Now, I think isn't this crazy? I think we are actually allowed under law to choose to stay where we are now. We are not allowed to, by federal law, we are not allowed to choose as a state to change our clocks to daylight saving time as it is in the summertime. We're not allowed by law to choose that as a state. It's the strangest thing. But we are allowed to choose to stay standard time where we are now. But the majority of the people, for whatever reason, uh, want the summertime more than they want the standard time. They want extended light in the evening. And maybe it is for business reasons, as, as you might have pointed out. Uh, but thank you for that. It's interesting. Uh, and I bet part of it is you guys have to get up so early for school and so early to begin your days that the light in the morning might uh, serve you. Any other thoughts on, on that? Um, I want to ask you about, th- there's a question that reporters ask uh, political leaders, and including the highest political leader, the President of the United States. They will ask the, the President of the United States frequently, what keeps you up in the middle of the night? In order to ask him, what is it that you worry about? And over the years, presidents have answered that question with things like Iran, Russia, nuclear weapons, North Korea, things like that. But I want to ask you at your ages and where you are in life, and, and I don't mean to, to encourage worry on your part, but I wonder if you worry about anything, John, what do you worry about? Um, well, to be totally honest, you know, being a teenage boy, it's pretty easy for me to fall asleep at any time of the day. Um, but I love that. Can I just say <laughs> I love that? <laughs> and, and I'm certainly not the president. I have a relatively stress-free life. And that's um, beautiful. And it, that's also a testament to your family. Yeah, yeah. So the biggest thing for me is honestly that I'm preparing myself for my future. Um, that I'm I'm preparing myself that I can get into a good college and provide provide for a family after that. That I'm being the best possible person to lay foundation for our community and our society as a whole. Um, if I have any worries, that's probably the biggest one. I love that. What What about for you, Dylan? And you know, this one kind of for me changes to whatever whatever the big thing going on in my life is. Like just like I'm sure it would for the president with whatever issue he's dealing with at the current time. I mean, that varies from, you know, conversations I had with friends or all the way over to, you know, I've got this extracurricular thing going on I really care about, and I'm trying to figure out how to make this or that happen, and I'm trying to, you know, put in my part, trying to balance my school with all that, and sometimes it just feels like a whole lot, and it keeps you up late at night. <coughs> what about for you, Micaiah? Um, As a teenager in the United States with all the freedoms that we have, I recognize I have a lot of opportunities And with great opportunity comes great responsibility. And so sometimes I worry and I feel pressure, and I think it's it's positive pressure, to live up to those opportunities that I have. And one of my greatest worries is that someday I'll look back and I'll see these opportunities and I'll think I missed those opportunities and I didn't live up to my responsibility to change the world or impact people in that way. And so if anything keeps me up at night, I'd say that's the greatest worry that I have is that I don't live up to that opportunity that I've been given. I'm quite sure you are. I I would not let that worry you too much. (laughs) I am quite sure you are. Um, Thank you for letting me ask that question. 
Let me move on to uh, the difference between Facebook and Twitter and the way that they're approaching political speech, which we see both in the form of advertisement and in uh, other forms of speech. We saw recently that Twitter banned all political ads with some very interesting commentary from the head of Twitter. In fact, I think I have the... Can I just read briefly from what the CEO of Twitter said, Jack Dorsey? He said, um, he said, while Internet advertising is incredibly, incredibly powerful and very effective for commercial advertisers, that power brings significant risks to politics where it can be used to influence votes to affect the lives of millions. Um, I read that and then I thought, how do we... How do we square that with what we saw from Mark Zuckerberg recently, where he said that he would not be fact-checking anything posted in the political arena on Facebook or Instagram or any of his um, mediums? Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. I'll start. I'll start with you. I know this is this is sort of a tough one, Dal. Where do you come down on this? The thing for me is that I value the ability of a democracy to truly make choices on its own. Like you know, educated votes are so so important, and having free speech for free discussion is also extremely crucial. And you know, they're very much tied together. And so the issue I see with this is. You know, the free speech of the candidate, their ability to communicate with their possible constituents. But also on the flip side of that, the nature of political ads to be short and to not actually be communicating much more than a name and a, you know, a, a question. Will you please vote for me? Right. And so the thing for me is I ultimately recognize that Twitter has a huge ability to allow these people to speak or not. The thing is, a lot of people are on Twitter, and if they allow or disallow people to do that, a lot of people probably won't or will see ads that they would or wouldn't have seen. And so, you know, with that great power, it's it's really interesting, like, you know, how they do that. It's probably going to change, in some to some extent, thousands and thousands of votes. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I, I respect his decision. Um, I think that the, the decision Twitter made is, you know, trying to keep politics out of this. And I do think that Twitter should be able to do that. But and the reason for that is because I don't want in the name of the voice of the people for us to silence the voice of the people by discouraging educated votes. What do you say, Makai? 
So I have a Twitter account, and the reason I got a Twitter account originally was so I could follow political campaigns and political discussions, because Twitter is a political social media platform, and more than Facebook or Instagram is. That's what a lot of people use Twitter for. And so when I saw that they had banned political advertisements, while I do agree that they have the absolute right to do that as a company, I do think it's the wrong decision because as a platform that is a political social media platform... They have the opportunity to be an advocate for free speech and to educate the people. There are some political ads that are deceiving the people, but also some that are educating. And so by banning these, we're banning both sides of the of the picture. And so for me, Twitter should not be banning these political ads because they're abridging the people's freedom of speech when they have the platform, have the opportunity to advocate for that free speech when it comes to the political realm. Mm, interesting. What do you make of this, John? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is a really tough question um, for me. What I really appreciated in what the CEO of Twitter said is that he's not going to ban ads that are encouraging people to get out to vote. And I think that is crucial to maintaining the integrity of our democracy. Um, I think that this is also a really tricky line um, that we're really towing the line here between restricting free speech and also unfairly um, motive or unfairly prejudicing um, people against a certain candidate. Uh, so I think we really need to be careful along that line of restricting free speech. But at the same time, if a candidate's the type of person that's going to purposefully mislead um, their voters, then that candidate shouldn't be elected in the first place. So I think that we need to enforce a stricter policy of honesty for our leaders first instead of um, blaming companies like Twitter and Facebook. Hmm. What do you make then of Facebook's decision to not fact-check anything that's on Facebook when it comes to politics. Do you disagree with that? Personally, I would stand more with Facebook than Twitter um, on this issue, just because I'm, I'm really cautious about anything that could be close to violating the right to free speech. Mm. Interesting. This is uh, my favorite hour of the week. It's a chance to sit down with the Utah's teenagers and ask them how they feel about the uh, most interesting issues of the week. And we'll be back in just a moment. We saw an interesting story this week. I'm here in studio with uh, Micaiah, Dallin, and John about the Boy Scouts. Um, and I, it, it made me sad. I'll just say that going in. Um, the Boy Scouts were raising their fees by 80%, which I can't help but feel will discourage necessarily just because some people won't be able to afford it for their children or for themselves. Um, because that's just going to that's just going to hike fees out of the realm of possibility for many uh, families who, for whom cost is an issue, but that cost is because of the lawsuits against the Boy Scouts from all over the country. First of all, can I ask, were either of you a Boy Scout? Yes, I, I was a Boy Scout. Yeah. What did you? Then I'm going to start with you. I know I just started with you before, but forgive me. Can I start with you again? Because this is is this personal for you? Uh, yeah, the thing for me is I have the greatest respect for what the program of Boy Scouts has been and has done for a lot of people. And, you know, like personally, what Boy Scouts did for me is I got to work with some really great Scoutmasters like, you know, Craig Bowden, Mike Ashbaker, Jill Minton. Thank you, guys. You guys gave me people to look up to and, you know, traits that I said I want to emulate that. I, I want to be that way. And, you know, still today, like I, I have a relationship with those people and, you know, they, they did a lot for me and I have a lot of respect for that. But at the same time, I recognize that the Boy Scout, you know, the organization of Boy Scouts is, is in a tough spot. It's kind of placed itself in a lose, lose, lose situation where it needs the money 
it, but raising the fund, like you know, raising the price is going to exclude the people who really need this the most. I mean, just just thinking purely of demographics, right? Like if we if we were to like you know raising that price is going to exclude it from the sort of people who are you know who who need this program, who yeah. don't have alternative programs that they can that they're, they're part of, and that just makes me sad to think that these people who really would take advantage of this opportunity are going to be denied it. What did you think, Micaiah, when they when the Boy Scouts invited girls to be a part of the program? Did that what did that did that say anything to you? Well, it was exciting. I've never been a part of the scouting program at all. And so I really don't feel like I have a place to, you know, talk about whether or not it was a good thing, but I think it's exciting that they extended out that opportunity to the girls. And I really think this whole thing with the scouting program is unfortunate because the the scouting program has really been put in a tough place. They have such limited options with all these lawsuits going against them. So my reaction is good for them for trying to continue with the program and reach as many people as they can with the limited options that they have. Yeah. What, what did you think of this, John? Yeah, so I'm actually a Boy Scout. I'm an Eagle Scout, actually. Really? Um, and so this has to hit home for oh, you. Oh, yes, 100% for sure. And like along with what Dallin was saying, I've had some people that have really influenced my life throughout the scouting program. That being said, um, I think the Boy Scouts uh, of America is really starting to fall out of touch with what the people want. You know, the hardest part of getting my Eagle was just the paperwork. So I think they need to, they need to eliminate some of these processes and these tougher requirements um, if they want to draw more people in, and I think that's another piece of this entire this this puzzle pu- this excuse me this puzzle that we really need to we really need to fix. Um, as far as the price changes, I, I stand with Dallin on this. Is that the people that really need it are going to be unable to access this program simply because it's so expensive? Yeah, and I I know with my older son, he took part in the program, and it was such a blessing in his life, and. And, you know, we just don't have the passion for it that we did back then. And that's that's too bad because the skills that he learned were extraordinary. Um, I'm going to jump topics now. Uh, boy, this is a big topic. This is a big topic. If, if, if I asked, you know, the average person of any age uh, what they thought about this, I'm not sure that they'd have enough information to give me an answer. So this is a big topic. And I'm going to start with you on this one, Micaiah. So, um as we hear about what's happening in Syria, and of course we saw um, the, uh, we saw, of course we we moved out some American troops, we got the head of ISIS and his right hand man, and then we saw American troops standing watch over Syrian oil fields, and we heard the president talk about how we're going to to take over that oil for a period of time and some reasoning for that um, that made s- s- more or less sense depending on how you're looking at it. And I wonder, as you look at at American troops standing watch over oil fields in a foreign country like Syria, especially after what's happened over there, does that make sense to you? Well, I think overall, the United States military power should stay out of Syria and other Middle Eastern countries. I agree with President Trump when he says we're fighting an endless war over there. But that being said, for me, this issue comes down to two things. It's either protecting the Kurds over there and the oil or allowing that oil to go to ISIS. And the U.S. is in a position where we're really the only country that can protect that oil from ISIS. And so I think this is an exception to that rule that 
President Trump said we're fighting an endless war. This is an exception where we do need to protect the U.S. and the Kurds over in that area with the oil fields. Even though we're sending our military power into a different country, I think overall it's a good thing for the U.S. to be protecting those oil fields. Do you agree, John? You know, I'll be honest. I'm not the president or the secretary of state. I I don't understand all the the deep policy behind this. Um, but based on the limited understanding that I have, I would tend to agree with Micaiah that we can't let the oil oil fields fall back into the hands of ISIS because then they have a revenue source to keep on fighting and keep growing and keep growing, and we just can't let that happen. Um, and so I think in that case, then we're not only pro- we're not just protecting an investment; we're protecting our our citizens and our people and our country as well. Does that make sense to you, Dylan? I certainly agree with the idea that oil is power, right? And it's something that we don't want falling into the hands of our enemies. It's something that, that we need for ourselves, to be honest. Like, we we need oil. You can't wage war without oil. And if the United States were to be in a position where we needed to wage war and we didn't have access to the oil we needed, that would be devastating to our ability to defend democracy. I, I you know, I'm, I'm just of the opinion that we shouldn't have left in the way that we, we did. I think it's a disgrace to America's, it's, it's a disgrace to America that we can't treat our own allies, the people who helped us through these hard times, with with any sort of respect. I think leaving the Kurds was was not the right thing to do, and I think the fact that we're coming back is, is almost just like rubbing it in. It's like you know we'd leave, we wouldn't stay for you, but we would stay for the oil, and that to me just says you know maybe we should have been there the whole time, and maybe we should have done this a bit differently. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on this one? Well, I'm going from one difficult topic to another difficult topic. And I want you to know, I'm not bringing this up because of the salacious nature of this story. I'm bringing it up for, I guess I'm bringing it up for the gender uh, part of it. And this is um, Representative Katie Hill, who stepped down from Congress. Um, I think she's from California, California. Um, she stepped down from Congress a week or so ago, and she claimed that she did so because of a double standard. I'm going to just quote uh, some of what she said from the floor. She said, I'm leaving because of a misogynistic culture that gleefully consumed my naked pictures, capitalized on my sexuality, and enabled my abusive ex, ex-husband, to continue that abuse. I'm leaving because of the thousands of vile, threatening emails, calls, and texts. Um, without, I don't want to go into what the, the parts of this that are, um, unnecessary for us to discuss, but the question I guess I have, John, is, is this her stepping down because of her behavior, which was inappropriate, which would cause anyone male or female to step down, or is this her stepping down and she has a point that men would not have been forced to step down, but she is somehow being treated differently, which is what she's claiming. I don't know. How, how do you understand, to the, to the extent that we can, what we're seeing in, in this case? Well, I think the first foundation that we need to build upon is if it's wrong for a man to do that sort of thing, then it's wrong for a woman to do that sort of thing. Um, and I think that... No matter no matter the circumstance, we just need to hold firm to that to that foundation. Um, I think that men who do that type of thing should also leave office. I think that women who do that type of thing should leave office. And I don't think it's something that should change based on your gender um, or, yeah. Right. 
it's a difficult issue to discuss, but it should precisely what John said. Over to you, Dell. You know, the thing for me is I 100% agree. We're not excusing anybody for this. Um, you know, male or female, if you act in that way, I think you certainly ought to leave office. But the thing to me is this speaks to a greater issue in politics. The fact that the fact that this sort of behavior is happening, the fact that we're the, the way that we're dealing with it, all of this is just such a mess. And I think that, that this is more a reflection of that than it is of any sort of double standard, because I don't think the double standard exists. I think, you know, we, we take individual claims for what they're worth and we make our judgments based off that. And if she wants to, to, to say other people's claims were not valid, that's her opinion. I disagree. Yeah. You know, she mentioned in her article, and I don't know, you take this for, for what you will. She, she's you know pointing out that the president has been accused of all of these um, all of these improprieties. And yet he's still the president. And she's been accused of of two instances of in, and someone exposed these private pictures of hers and she has to leave. Whether you agree with her or not, you can see where she's coming from on that argument. What say you? You know, it, it's difficult, right? Because, again, the system is just such a mess that that sort of thing happens in the first place. Um, and, and then, the, you know, the, the, the fact that it can continue. right? I, I remember her, one of her claims was like the people let my my ex continue this sort of abuse. And I agree, like, we shouldn't be doing that. But there also there needs to be a better way to solve these sort of claims, because if we just say every claim is valid, we're giving people far too much power to make empty claims and remove people from office. But if we say that no claim is valid, then we're denying people of, you know, being able to find justice for these awful wrongs. And so I say that, you know, I look, I'm going to take this on a case by case basis. And, you know, it, I, you know, I would have to go to the details of the case and I'd have to make that decision. I'm not going to just say the fact that there was a claim. Yeah. One way or the other. Micaiah. Over the past couple of years, we've seen a lot of growth in the Me Too movement with women saying that men have sexually abused them or sexually harassed them. And we have seen men being punished for that or stepping down, whether they're the CEO of a business or they're in politics. And I think it's important for us to look at that because we're seeing the women with Katie Hill and we're seeing the men over in the Me Too movement. Both of them, if the claims are valid, they are stepping down. And so I think when she says there's a double standard, I think like Dallin said, we have to look at it case by case. It's an individual claims that are being made. And we need to look at both of those, regardless of the gender. And I think that's what the U.S. is doing, looking at those regardless of the gender and then making our decisions based off of that. So when she says that there's a double standard, I don't think that she has an argument to make based off of what we've seen with the Me Too movement over the past couple of years. Strong comments from very young people. Uh, well done. May I ask you now... Um, Oh, this is a, another challenging. We have so many challenging uh, issues this week, and you're handling them so brilliantly. So Amazon is thinking about suing over losing the contract to Microsoft. This is a big, hairy one to get your brain around. Amazon was the leader in getting this gargantuan contract for quite a long time. Then it says, and it claims that it has and had and always had the better product for this particular contract. Then it claims that President Trump started criticizing uh, Jeff Bezos and it specifically, and it loses the contract to Microsoft, which it claims never was and still is not good enough to get the contract. Does Amazon have a claim for not getting 
the contract in this case. Who wants to take a shot at this? Because this is a chocolate mess. Would you? Would you please tell? Yeah, I mean the thing is, is like, would I would I legally think that they can win this case? I think it's a real uphill battle. You know, the burden of proof, you know, in this sort of legal case is going to be preponderance of evidence. It all, it, it just becomes this big mess where they have to say we would have gotten it if Donald Trump had not made those comments about our company. But on the flip side of this, we're talking, I mean, did Donald Trump have a right to make those comments? And were you making comments about him? Right. I, I think if Jeff Bezos is going to get up there and claim, well, he makes a comment and it harms me, you know, I should sue for damages. Why can't Donald Trump say the same thing? Because once, as soon as you start politicizing your company, you have to understand that politics has a right and should fire right back. Who makes the decision about the contract? Like, who, who is it that decides if they're going to take the contract or not? Who, who makes the decision about who gets the contract? Uh, that would be – it was the White House in this case? Yeah. Yeah. Over to you, John. You know, this is a really complicated issue. Um Honestly, if I were a lawyer and if I were advising Amazon, I would probably tell them not to sue because I, I don't believe that they even have a case um, to, to winning back this contract. Um, the, the fact of the matter is is that the, U, the United States government looks at all the available options, and if they find the best bidder with the best product, then they're going to go with those people. Now, I don't understand the entire bidding process as well as I'd like to, um, but based on what I've seen, there's nothing unethical or nothing wrong with this process. It just went to the better company. What do you say, Micaiah? Well, I agree with Dallin and John. I think Amazon doesn't really have a case, and it would be an uphill battle to try to go and win this case. You know, they'd be using time and resources that would be wasted. And like Dallin said, the president has the right to say what he wants about Amazon. And it would be hard to prove that those comments were what made Amazon lose to the contract. So as a lawyer, I would say, you know, Amazon, don't pursue the case and instead go pursue other contracts. Amazon has the potential to have a contract with CIA or other organizations like that and get just as much money as they would have with the Department of Defense. And so I would encourage them to do that rather than fight this battle with Amazon and the, the cloud yeah. contract. Trying to add, Dallin. This just makes me think of like gravel trucks on the road, right? It's got gravel spilling everywhere. And and then all of a sudden, a piece of gravel hits my windshield and surprise, it's broken. And like, look, odds are that's probably how my windshield got broken. But can I prove it in court? Probably not. And, and and with that being said, though, I don't think that they'd win the case. But I would actually, if I was Amazon, I would probably pursue the case just for the public support of the people. Right. Like, you know, I think you'd garner some sort some support of people who are saying, you know, that wasn't fair. Let's go support Amazon. Hmm. But interesting. Interesting. Because the three of you are engaged in making legal arguments. So it's an interesting <laughs> uh, uh, exercise. Um, OK, before the time is completely gone, I want to ask you one final question, which I'm I'm exploring this uh, exercise. And, and so I'm asking all of my guests here, both of your age and you know, on my Women's View program, um, we are. And the, the question that I'm asking, it, it's focused on the word duty. We are frequently criticizing others at the presidential level and, and, and below them at the congressional level, at the mayoral level. We are frequently uh, criticizing others for not performing their duty. Um, that word had stuck in my mind. And I started to think about what is their duty? And so then I began to think, but what is my duty? What is my duty? As an American, as a mother, as a member of my community, I couldn't stop thinking about that. 
Because I think, as my colleague Boyd Matheson has often said, that the answers to problems usually begin here uh, and not there. So I wanted to just throw it out to you. I have no idea where your brain's going to go on this. I have no expectation that it will go any particular place. I, I Share with me whatever thoughts come to mind when I ask the question, Makaya, what, if any, do you perceive as your duty? So I think when all of us are born into the world, the world is in a certain place. And then eventually all of us are going to leave this world. And I think it's the individual duty of every person to leave the world greater than it was when they first came. And so regardless of that, if you're the president or you're serving the military or you're just serving in your community, everyone has the duty to make the world a better place. And as cliche as that sounds, it's true. All of us have that opportunity. And the funny thing about life is sometimes just being a good person, you know, is bettering the world and making it greater. And so I think each of us have that duty. I have that duty to impact the world positively in whatever way I can and whatever is my call in order to fulfill my duty as an individual. Beautiful. Dallin, please. You know, I think to understand our duty as Americans, we first have to look at one of Ronald Reagan's quotes where he says, you know, our freedom wasn't passed down in the bloodstream. We must protect it, defend it, and hand it on to the next generation for them to have. And I think that's true. I think, you know, we are so, so very blessed to have the freedom and the opportunity we have living in the United States of America. And I think if we don't use that freedom, then we are not respecting the fact that it was given to us. Our duty is to use that freedom, to protect that freedom, to spread that freedom, to teach our kids about the heritage we have, because that's how that freedom sustains itself. You know, I think we have a duty, no matter how frustrated we get at politics at the national level, to not give up to vote, to keep stay involved in political discussion because that like that's what America needs. America needs Americans who are going to make America great. And I'm not saying that like you know Donald Trump's slogan, I'm saying America is great and if we want to keep it that way, that comes back to us. I love that you said that today on election day uh, because today is the day when it is incumbent upon those of us who are of age to vote. And voting is a, a sacred duty for Americans. I think about those who are not uh, allowed to vote in their country or for whom the vote is is a meaningless activity. And you're saying that made me uh, feel even more um, grateful for my right to vote. Thank you for that. John? Honestly, it's hard to follow up what Dallin just said. That was was incredible. Um, But I think the foundational duty of every American is to vote. And I think building upon that there are so many other things that we have rights and privileges that other countries just dream about and if we're not willing to use those rights to speak up to to assemble freedom of the press all these rights that are guaranteed in our constitution if we're not going to use those rights then i think we're kind of disrespecting the people that gave them to us Maybe we don't even deserve them in the first place. Um, so if you're concerned about, about teen suicide or, or guns in schools, then why don't you speak up and do something? Because you have the power. If you don't see a good candidate in office or someone that or you don't see a candidate that you agree if, with that's running, then why don't you get up and run? Because you have that right. And I think as an Americans, we need to respect that duty and that right to, to vote and to run for office and, and to free speech and all these other rights. We need to respect those and also encourage them, pass them on to our children um, because they're so essential in our democracy. Bravo, bravo, bravo! 
bravo. Uh, will you ever run for office, John? Yes, 100%. I hope you will. If I need it, I'd then like I'm to going. vote for you. Um, I, I know the time is up. Please come back and see me again. Please come back and see me again. Please, Makai, come back and see me again. This is Through Their Eyes on KSL News Radio.